podcast and to the last Q&A session before I dive into the Enneagram of Mimetic Desire. I've got a whole bunch of questions to get through, so let's see how it goes. First question is, why do you make this podcast and what is the story that led you here? Well, the story isn't particularly long or complicated, thankfully. The idea of starting a podcast had occurred to me sometime towards the end of 2015 and As a kind of confirmation of this idea, a few different people separately and apart from my even mentioning it, suggested I give it a go, or at least that I find a way to get some of my intellectual adventuring out into the world. I had been blogging occasionally, from, um, but I I also realized that people weren't reading as much, um, and so this seemed to me to be the medium uh, of preference. And so I started off in February of 2016, and here we are. I make this podcast mostly because of an insatiable desire to want to share my thoughts with others. For a lot of my life, I've often experienced the world in some ways as if from being behind a a kind of one-way mirror. And as I've gotten older, the need to be able to share my observations and discoveries with others has increased. And as it turns out, I I actually really enjoy sharing my thoughts with others who, who care to listen. I get feedback, challenges, and uh, I find ways to grow in the process, which I think is really great. And it creates a kind of imagined community, which is which is nice. It's, it's a way to find kindred spirits out there who might be wrestling with uh, similar things to what I'm wrestling with. As an aside to this answer... You might find it interesting that when I started, I was actually a little bit nervous that no one would listen, but I was also a bit nervous about the possibility that, you know, more than 10 people would listen. And by now, the podcast is getting something like 10,000 downloads a week, which is totally blowing my mind. Uh, So thanks for listening, everyone. Um, Yeah, there you go. Second question. Do you see the podcast's intent changing over time away from heresy towards something else? And if so, why? That's a really good question and really perceptive because I do think there has been a shift in my thinking over the last uh, two odd years since I started. Episode one of this podcast looked at how heresy is always way more complicated a matter than we would often assume. And I guess I was always a little sensitive to the issue of heresy because I've been denounced as a heretic quite a few times in my life, probably because I haven't always had the sense to keep my skepticism entirely to myself. But in some ways, I've discovered that I'm a little bit like Chesterton in that I've tried my best to concoct my own heresy and then discovered, once I've put the finishing touches on it, that my heresy is really orthodoxy. Well, it's not entirely orthodox, I suppose, but... Actually, my podcast's intent was was less to explore heresy than to be honest in my explorations of various aspects of Christian faith, especially the more imaginative ways that Christianity has been and can be articulated. Earlier on in this podcast's history, that meant that I was often offering something like a, a theological critique of ideology, which is something that still interests me and More recently, I've been digging into questions of finding and negotiating meaning in life, but still with an eye to finding kind of imaginative articulations of Christian faith. I've never really stuck to one subject, as most of you have noticed, and I can't even begin to hope that I will 
stay in the same place intellectually. So if there has been a steady shift in my thinking, uh, I hope it's because I'm just growing. And I guess we can all hope we're growing. Um, And I certainly hope that what I'm working through here helps you out there to navigate your own journey, even if you don't end up agreeing entirely with what I have to say. So I guess, yeah, the short answer to the question is that, um, yes, I think there has been a change in the podcast's intent over time because my own intentions have have shifted and that has to do with my a perpetual interest in a world of interesting things and hopefully that um, has been part of uh, my own personal growth. The third question I have is in your podcast you have described faith as your posture towards being slash reality which transcends knowledge and love as a posture towards reality which embraces, celebrates, and encourages being, and which transcends feeling slash emotion. Forgive me if I mangle your definitions. Is love then a type of faith? How would you describe hope? And how is hope different to faith, and faith different to love? And why is love the greatest of these? I really like this question because I'm not even sure I'll be able to answer it properly. The best questions always hint to more than what I can contain in a few minutes. And I've already received so many questions like that. So this is really great. So, um, well, I don't think this mangles my definitions, actually. It seems pretty close to what I have said before. But it'll help to clarify the distinctions between these three Christian virtues, uh, which St. Paul mentions rather frequently, and especially in 1 Corinthians 13. That's kind of the most famous passage. So, faith, hope, and love. First, faith. Well, faith is actually really practical. At its most fundamental level, it indicates a basic posture or intentionality towards reality. And I guess in more sort of spiritual terms, it indicates an openness through otherness towards what is ultimate. So, faith, in a way, amounts to the capacity to receive the gift of reality and this has as i've indicated very much to do with a posture it's it's a stance towards the real and then hope well i see hope as the virtue of holy saturday which keeps two impossibly huge things in tension namely good friday which indicates despair loss abandonment and the like and resurrection sunday which indicates the ultimate consummation of all of reality Hope is the way we live within the tensions of life, accepting both loss and gain, both death and resurrection. It's got something to do with that tension that is spoken of in in the book of John, which is being in the world, but not of it. So it's not hope if it's just about gain. That, That, I would say, is just optimism. And it's also not hope if it's just about what we have lost. Well, that would be just pessimism or or cynicism. So yeah, that's hope. And so now love. Well, love is the virtue, as I've said, that affirms the goodness of created being. And yes, I do think this is also a posture in a sense. It's a stance towards the world. But I don't think that necessarily makes it identical with faith. It's the greatest of the virtues because it is the ground that makes the other virtues possible. You cannot be open to that which you are not willing to affirm. You also can't really hope if there's nothing to hope for or with. So 
I do see faith, hope, and love as somewhat Trinitarian in their structure in that they're interwoven and interdependent, but I don't think faith and love and hope are identical. Although in the life of anyone who lives by faith, it is difficult, if not impossible, to know exactly where the line between the virtues is. That's a very rough uh, answer, but if you are interested in exploring the relationship between faith, hope, and love more deeply, I I would uh, recommend that you look at Joseph Pieper's book, Faith, Hope, and Love. I think it is astonishingly good, and I agree with him entirely, which uh, is not often something you can say about a book. Actually, I've found anything by Joseph Pieper to be really heavenly, so you should read his work if you have a chance. Now, question four. So question four is this. In your book, which is nice, uh, someone is reading my book. So in your book, you point out that there is a clear difference between knowing about a thing and experientially knowing it. And in your podcast, you've mentioned that God is the ultimate subject. Can we know about God? If not, why not? And if so, what? (laughs) So how's that for another question I cannot answer fully? Here's my short answer. Well, in my book, I've made a distinction between knowing about and knowing experientially, which places knowledge on a continuum of sorts. Without getting into high-octane epistemology, the basic idea is actually something that pretty much is in keeping with Paul's idea of knowing in part and knowing fully in 1 Corinthians 13. Instead of providing a definition per se, I'd rather give you an image. So there's knowing about the fact that when you become a parent, you'll experience immense joy and, and a kind of expansion of your capacity to love. And a few negatives like a severe loss of sleep, additional anxiety, myriad concerns about how to be the best parent you can, and so on. And your imagination can actually take you pretty deeply into that knowledge, which means that when those things actually happen, you actually experience them, you are not totally surprised. But at the same time, the actual experience, while not discontinuous with what you had known about parenting, is somehow also totally different from what you knew. You knew things, and you weren't wrong, but in truly experiencing the knowledge, it gains a kind of deeper reality that is far deeper than you could have anticipated. To use an image from the first book of John, the word becomes flesh. What was in a way disembodied becomes unified in our embodied experience. And with that in mind, we can look then at the question of knowing God. The question is, can we know about God? And if not, why not? And if so, what? So first, can we know about God? The short answer is, Yes, we can know about God, but only in accordance with the limitations of our being. This is true of knowing anything in a way. I can know a great deal about a great many things, but given that I am a limited human being, my knowledge also has it's going to be placed under pretty severe limitations. I've spoken on this podcast about capacity, meaning basically the maximum amount that a thing can contain. I think it's not just amount, but qualitative in in our uh, in more human terms. Well, as with any container, there is a maximum, there is a limit. But with God, with knowing God, this maximum is reached fairly quickly, 
given that God is qualitatively different from anything else that we can know. Which brings us to the question of what we can know about God. This is a massive question on its own, and it has a long tradition in theology. It's, it's a question that many, many theologians have grappled with. In fact, I don't think there is a theologian who has not, at least on some level, grappled with this question. So I'm going to answer just very briefly, just to give you a, a clue of what makes sense to me. What seems most obvious, and this is hinted in the question, is that God is the ultimate subject. What I mean by this is that God is not an object of thought. God is not a being like you or me or the table I'm sitting in front of or or the empty mug next to me that once contained coffee. God is not being but beyond being. God is totally other, the absolute other. He is more like nothing than like anything else and yet like nothing at all. We know him as a subject in a similar way to how we know anyone. We have to empathically absorb something of their natures into ourselves and let our own subjectivity be transformed in an encounter with an alternate subjectivity. And this prevents us from reducing people to objects of thought and allows us to embrace a deeper understanding of their personhood. We don't become others per se, but we are definitely changed by knowing others. Given all of this, All that we can know about God must be by analogy, which is something that St. Thomas Aquinas elucidates really well. It's also something I happen to talk about in my book. So I've got a little snippet that I'd like to read to you from my book. Um, This is a snippet of a much longer section dealing with analogy as a, I guess, as a theological concern, but also as a hermeneutic concern, as a concern that deals with how we interpret the world. So here it is. Analogy is the mode of thinking that accounts both for the complexity of reality and for the limits of language in its ability to explain reality. It is that which allows for the interconnectedness of things and thus the participation between a sign and the actual thing it refers to. It also makes room for the differences between things, like the difference between the sign and the thing it refers to. In short, as Kenner notes, Analogy has to do with comparison. It is the idea that reality may be understood primarily by juxtaposing things to see how they affect each other. Analogy is the device by which one finds agreement between agreement and disagreement. It is the tool by which difference and sameness gain their meaning. Obviously, I explain more about this in my book, But the gist of the idea is that we know about God by means of recognizing the goodness, beauty, truth, and unity in being, and then inferring the origin of that goodness, beauty, truth, and unity, which is God. We understand that for things to be genuinely real rather than matters of mere perception, they must have a source that is transcendentally real. For things to be understandable and knowable and interpretable, There needs to be a a source of their meaning that transcends our meaning-making systems, basically our cognition. I also hold to something like a committed apophaticism, which is also known as negative theology. And I think this works pretty well with the doctrine of analogy and requires far more explanation than I'll give here. But the short version is that we know God primarily by means of the negative way or via negativa, to use some Latin, 
we can more easily say what God is not than what he is. So briefly put, in negative theology we speak of what God is not, and by analogy or in terms of what the doctrine of analogy explains, we try to get as close to articulating what God is like as we can. So, as the question hints, we can know about God, in which case God becomes a mere logical possibility, but then we can also know God within our experiential being. This is something that the the mystics are particularly fond of, of talking about, and in that case, logic itself is transcended and included. And I would say that both modes of knowing God are by analogy, which is to say that both modes of knowing are necessarily incomplete. And the rest is a much bigger discussion, but that at least should give you some sense of of an answer. Now question five. Between the Enneagram, Myers-Briggs, the big five personality traits, the slightly less big ten personality traits, IQ, EQ, and various other metrics used to determine one's abilities and or behavior, how does one best use all of these tools to actually grow? Do these tools clash or align or deal with different domains entirely? Just a few thoughts on this one. Obviously, I've spoken about the Enneagram on this podcast, and I've alluded to other typologies uh, for personality as well, like the Myers-Briggs model, or also known as the MBTI. Typology systems of various kinds rely on the power and the hazards of stereotyping. The power of stereotyping is that it points out patterns and aggregates that do, on the whole, apply. The hazards of stereotyping stem from its tendency to leave out very important details in a picture that in the end confounds the pattern. People are divided according to particular qualitative differences between them, whether in terms of their behavior, range of actions, thought processes, characteristics, and so on. And the key thing to notice is that each model has a different intention or aim. So that somewhat begins to answer the last bit of the question. I don't think the typologies clash, but from what I can tell, it seems to me that alignments between them are rather limited. I am, for example, an Enneotype 5 with a 4 wing, and according to the MBTI, my cognitive function preferences make me an INFJ, but most of the Enneotype 5s I know are INTJs or INTPs, and one of them is an ENTJ, which is, I think, rather surprising. And most of the INFJs I know are not Enneotype 5s. So at least as my limited experiential sample group would indicate, there doesn't seem to be much of an overlap between these two systems. And on the big five front, well, it seems to me that the different traits described could really apply to any type, whether MBTI or Enneagram. And the big five doesn't clarify hidden motivation in the same way that the Enneagram does, nor does it really indicate much in the way of cognitive functions as far as the Jungian models go, Jungian models like the MBTI. And I'm not even going to speak about IQ or EQ, which are very different measurement systems entirely. All typologies have limits, and I think typologies become really silly when those limits are not heeded. Typology nerds have, in my experience, often made their preferred typology system claim more than is really fair to the system itself. This is where a lot of harm is caused and a lot of stupidity perpetuated. In a way, I'd like to suggest that 
we should take typology systems very lightly. This may seem like a strange bit of advice because I'm about to launch into another series on the Enneagram, but what I mean is that typology systems, given how they work with generalizations, need always to be tested in keeping with your own concrete specificity, your own unique being, and they should not be used to account for more than they really can account for. So in using typologies, the best way to go would be to figure out what the typing systems are best at pointing out. What is the system supposed to uncover? Then recognize that each system is a discernment tool. And there's something that Chesterton points out, which I think is rather brilliant. It's the idea that human beings are almost always incredibly distant from themselves. It's easier in a way to know the world than to know ourselves, although we unconsciously also project ourselves onto the world. So the helpfulness of a typology system is that it can often point to things within us that we are not aware of. And in so doing, we actually become aware of our natural as well as hidden capacities. And in recognizing especially our hidden capacities, we then have the opportunity to take steps to really develop those capacities that have been more latent. Along these lines, I'd suggest that the dominant way to grow is to take genuine action towards developing your latent capacities. It's nice, of course, to to be able to recognize your strengths, but to actually develop yourself, thinking does not make it so. On the Enneagram, you would say, note what strengths are found at your point of integration, and then take definite steps towards adopting practices that help you to balance out in a way. On the MBTI front, you would need to have some sense of the cognitive functions, since actually I I think the MBTI is pretty useless and pointless uh, and misleading, in fact, without some understanding of those cognitive functions. And the general idea with regard to the MBTI is to take note specifically of the auxiliary function, which is the go-to mode of being that will help you to balance out, and also the inferior function, which is essential for understanding how to rest well And it also gives you some insight into what will happen to you when you are stressed out completely. There is a lot of nonsense out there on the MBTI, so if you like, and if you ask for it, I will do a short episode or two on the essentials of that model in the future. It's something that has proved to be very helpful to me, and I've seen it uh, be helpful for a lot of other people as well. I will also, uh, just in this episode, I'll put a few links in the show notes uh, to some books that I think are particularly well worth uh, referring to if you if you like. Um, I haven't really talked about the big five here, but I think the general principle is the same. It will point out some deficits and, and really figuring out what those deficits are in you. It helps to kind of work on them, just not to completely necessarily overcome them, but just to, to develop yourself in a way that um, helps you to live better in the world. Last few few ideas. Remember that that all models are wrong. But some models are useful after all, and and some models are actually only really useful if what they're pointing out helps you to genuinely find a better way through the world. Um, I will leave it at this for now, excluding the IQ and EQ thing, which I I hope uh, makes sense that I've I've left that out. And now for the last question, which I'm going to read and then not answer which may seem a strange thing to do in a Q&A episode. The reason I'm going to read it and then not answer it is because it's a fantastic question and it also requires much more attention and time than I really have um, at the moment. So 
in reading it, I'm making a promise to future me and future you that I will give a decent answer to it when we're done with the Enneagram of Mimetic Desire series. It'll also give you something to ponder in the back of your minds, uh, so you can think about how you would answer this question. Um, I would be very curious, in fact, um, as to how you would answer this question. Um, you're always welcome to, to email me at unorthodoxy at zoho.com. So, here is the question. You have shared your sermon on Rethinking Hell and spoke about the difference between Satan, capital S, and small s, Satan, in the Job series. What is your interpretation of passages of scripture which deal with exorcisms and casting out demons, spiritual warfare, fighting weapons, fire and burning symbolism, demons, etc., found especially in the New Testament? Isn't that a great question? It's so good. And uh, as I think you can uh, gather from the number of things mentioned in the question, it really does need a, a proper bit of attention which I'm not going to give to it right now. So that is it for this Q&A episode. Thank you everyone for listening. I hope you're looking after yourselves and discovering new wonders everywhere you look. Cheers for now. Thank you.